Here we go. Okay. All right. We are learning today. We are going to be studying Parsha's Sisa, which is a really long Parsha. And I'm going to just tell you some of the big points in the Parsha, and I'm going to show you how, they, hopefully, God willing, how they fit together. And I had some amazing material on this class from previously, but I wanted to do something fresh. So this is brand new. I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, first of all, we finish up the construction of the tabernacle, the Mishkan, the, the temple that we traveled with in the desert. And we just talk about collecting the final money for that. We talk about the urn for hand, for hand washing. We talk about the anointing oil, which they used to make things sanctify things, and then the incense that was burned. And we talk about the two artists, the artisans who were chosen to construct the sanctuary. Fine. And then suddenly it jumps to Shabbos, which we haven't heard about in a few weeks since the Ten Commandments. And we learn something very cool about Shabbos. First thing we learn is that Shabbos is always mentioned next to the construction of the sanctuary, the tabernacle. What's the connection? So from the connection between Shabbos and the sanctuary, we learn the things you're not allowed to do on Shabbos. Does anyone know what we don't do on Shabbos? Besides my daughter. Okay. We don't drive on Shabbos. Why don't we drive on Shabbos? Oops. Ah, and how do we learn to define creative actions? Where do we, where do we determine what's a creative action, what's not a creative action? Isn't it something like to do with whatever actions? Yes, exactly. And we learn that precisely from the fact that the two are found right next to each other, in not not only in this week's parsha, but in uh, in next week's Parsha as well, they are right next to each other. And from there, we learn specifically that the 39 behaviors, creative activities that are found in the building of the temple, those 39 activities are not allowed to be done on Shabbos. So I want to understand what the connection is. What does one have to do with the other? What does half building this sanctuary, this house for God have to do with Shabbos? Okay, so that's question number one. Yes. So what it not in detail, but we I'm happy to do that later or even briefly now. But the thirty nine behaviors have to do with the things that were went into building the, the tabernacle. So it has to do with the uh, 10 different activities that go into creating bread from plowing, planting, reaping, sowing, grinding, baking, kneading. Okay, so that's one section of the 39 things. That's 10 already. So we have 29 to go. So we have um, all the things that have to do with building, cutting, wood, measuring, hammering, um, dying right so that's okay so then there's the the wood type of stuff molding metal stuff like that okay then you have the the stuff that has to do with animal hides so there's slaughtering an animal dying shearing um cutting tanning okay so that's a whole other group of things that you're not allowed to do and then um writing and making fire and i'm probably forgetting some stuff all right, but that's that was an overview, and I could organize it. I, I could easily organize it and should have it organized. But the real question is, so those are all basically all types of creative stuff you could possibly ever do, ever. All right, those are the, those are the actions that go into building the world, and we want to know what that has to do with Shabbos. Okay, question number one. Then we also learn in this week's Parsha, from the fact that Shabbos comes right next to the building of the sanctuary with a special word that says, that teaches us that we don't break Shabbos to build the temple. 
You might think the temple is the big deal. It's a really big deal. We're building a house for God. So you should think it overrides Shabbos. The answer is it doesn't. Shabbos trumps temple. Okay, just hold that in your back pocket. We'll come back to it. Then we learn something cool about Shabbos, which I'm going to explain hopefully in depth if we have time, which is in this week's Parsha, when it talks about Shabbos, it says a special verse, which we'll discuss, that the Talmud says we learn from this, that on Shabbos, we get an extra level of soul. We have the ability to connect to a higher level of soul, a higher level of spirituality, a higher, deeper connection to ourselves on Shabbos. And again, I want to explain that. What's interesting about it is the Talmud teaches us that that soul comes on Shabbos and it leaves after Shabbos. So again, what's the point of it? You have this revelation of your soul and then you lose it. Why? Why doesn't it stay? Then we have a big thing, something big. Moses comes down with the two Ten Commandments, the two tablets that were written on them, the Ten Commandments. He received them from God. God gave him the, the stone and the writing. The writing was spiritual writing. It was engraved straight through. The letters were floating. It's like a whole thing. He, he And he comes down and he finds the Jewish people have gotten themselves into big trouble. Do you guys know what big trouble they got themselves into? You might have seen the movie about this one. Moses comes down the mountain. He finds the Jewish people engaged in something really uncharacteristic. The golden calf. It's in this week's Parsha. And he immediately smashes the tablets, grinds up the cow, and there's a whole big fight, and it's a big deal, and God wants to destroy the Jewish people, and it's like a whole mess, and Moses pleads on behalf of, please save the Jewish people. If not, wipe me out of your book. We mentioned that uh, last week for anyone who listened to the podcast. And then a couple of responses happen. First of all, God tells Moshe, I will not take you into the land of Israel. I will send an angel, but I myself will not be accompanying you anymore because I see that you guys aren't on the level to have me in your midst. Another thing, the Talmud says that at Mount Sinai, the Jewish people got to the level of Adam and Eve before they ate from the tree of good and evil, which means we became immortal. We no longer had to die anymore. From the moment we worshiped the calf, death came back. So that's punishment number two. And now the rectification for this whole ordeal with the calf is that according to most commentaries, the commandment of building a sanctuary of building a mishkan, a tabernacle, a temple. Actually, the Torah is not written in order. There are verses in the Torah that are totally out of context based on the storyline of what we need to learn, but not based on chronological order. So according to many commentaries, Rashi included, who's like the principal commentary in the Torah, the commandment to build a sanctuary only took place after we worshiped the calf. Before we worshiped the calf, we were not obligated or commanded to build a temple. So what is the connection between one thing and the other? Okay. Then Moshe builds second, carves second tablets. This time he carves them himself. Goes up on the mountain, prays for 40 days, gets the Jewish people forgiven, goes back up, gets the next Ten Commandments, and comes back down finally on Yom Kippur for the third time. And this is what's really cool. Okay, I just remembered this. Last year, this Shabbos was the first Shabbos in quarantine. I don't know if you guys remember that very first week that you suddenly couldn't go anywhere. So what's so cool, and I posted this on Facebook back then, is at the end of this week's Parsha, Moshe comes down from the mountain and his face, it says, is glowing. And it says that he has rays of light emerging from his face. Now, I don't know if you guys know. But Michelangelo, yes, Michelangelo, wait, yeah, pretty sure Michelangelo has a famous statue of Moshe, of Moses. Do you guys know what I'm referring to? It's in Rome. No, not the David, it's the Moshe, <laughs> the Moses. So the David, uh, he got that one wrong because David wore clothes and, uh, the Moses, he got the clothes part right, but he got something else very wrong. Does anyone know what it is? 
So Moses, Moshe is depicted with horns coming out of his head. You ever hear the, uh, you know, ever see Borat or whatever, like that Jews have horns? So where did that come from? That people think Jews have horns. And that's why we wear our yarmulkes to cover our Jew horns. Anyone ever ask you, can I see your Jew horns? I, I don't remember if anyone asked me. I can't recall. Um, so where did they get that idea that Jews have horns? The answer is because they're all art historians and they know that Michelangelo drew statue of Moses with horns. So why did Michelangelo think that Moses had horns? And the answer is from this week's Parsha. Because when Moshe comes down from the mountain, the last time, his face is glowing. And he has these crowns of light, these horns of light that are shining off of his head. And the way you say a ray of light in Hebrew is Karen. Karen, which is the same word in Hebrew for horn. So whoever translated the Torah into Latin or into Italian that Michelangelo was reading translated, mistranslated the word as horn as opposed to crown. So he thought that Moshe had horns. The answer is he had something called Karen or Panav, which means the, 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 the ray of the light of his face. His, light was, his face was glowing. But the word Karen is possibly related to the word Corona. Because Corona is called Corona. Why is Corona called Corona? Because it has these horns that are sticking out of it. Right? It's this, this thing with these spiky horns. So it's quite possible that it came from the Hebrew word. Although from the Latin, right? The, in the, the word Corona in Latin means a crown. Again, a crown is made up of these spiky things that shine off of one's face. And this light that was emerging from Moshe's head was really related to the idea of the crown. The crown, which is the highest level of, of spiritual revelation, which is above the head. So that's pretty cool, okay? But if you thought that was cool, so then Moshe's face is shining because he has Karen. He has Karen on his face that he has to wear something called a masfech. Do you know what a masfech is? Comes from the modern Hebrew, a masecha is a mask. Guess where the word mask comes from, guys? It's a Hebrew word. It's in this week's parsha. Moshe has to wear a mask to cover his face because his face is shining so bright people can't look at him. And he goes and he pitches his tent outside the encampment. He goes into quarantine. Because he's too holy for people to be near him. So that, my friends, is what we read last year on the first Shabbos in quarantine. I thought that was pretty cool. All right. So that's this week's Parsha. So now let's try to tie it together and make some sense of it and see what the essence of Shabbos is about, what the essence of the sanctuary is about, why in the world the Jewish people worship the golden calf after they saw God speak to them at Mount Sinai, and, and the crazy thing is they say, they say of the calf, this is the God, the gods that took us out of Egypt. How could it be? How in the world could they think that this calf that they just built took them out of Egypt? So we got to understand what's going on with the golden calf. So, um, all right, here we go. So why do we need a Mishkan? Why do we need a sanctuary? And another question I want to throw out there is what was the primary service, the purpose, what was going on in the temple most of the time? Does anyone know? Unmute yourselves. Offerings, animal sacrifices. How weird is that? I mean, that's pretty weird. Like, we pray that we should rebuild the temple so we can bring animal sacrifices. And there are some opinions that we won't be bringing them nowadays. But for the most part, the simple understanding is that we will. So why do we need animal sacrifices? So I want to share with you some amazing ideas. According to many commentaries, the, the Mishkan, the sanctuary, was only commanded, like I said, after the sin of the golden calf because the original goal was that every single Jew would have a sanctuary within their heart. 
There is no need for this place, the centralized place, to serve God or for God to be revealed. The goal was that he would be revealed within each and every one of us. And in fact, the verse says, when we're commanded to build a, mish, a, a mishkan a few weeks ago, it says, Asili Build for me a sanctuary and I will dwell in them. And some of the commentaries point out, what's them? It should I say, I will dwell in it. And the answer is because build for me a sanctuary and I will dwell in them. The goal is still that God should dwell in each and all, every one of our hearts. But we need now this sanctuary, this place to come to. We got to understand why and what the purpose of that is. The goal is to build a dwelling place for Hashem in this world. According to the Talmud, one of the reasons that we understand that God created the world is that he wanted to dwell down below in the physical. He wanted us to bring him into the darkest places to build what's called a dir b'tachtonen, a dwelling place below in the lower world. So why do we need this sanctuary if the goal is that God should dwell within each and every one of us? And he does dwell within each and every one of us. We're just not connected or aware of his presence within us. So at Mount Sinai, the Jewish people reached the spiritual level of Adam before the sin. And I've mentioned before, I'll mention again, that Adam was a purely spiritual being. Adam was a soul who had a body. You know, I like to trick you guys. I say, do you, do you believe you have a soul? And everyone says, yes. Or some people say yes. And I say, no, Judaism doesn't believe that you have a soul. Judaism believes you are a soul and you have a body. But our experience, and if you look at the prayers in the Siddur, in the Jewish prayer book, many of the prayers say the soul that you placed in me. What does that imply about who I am? A body or a soul? Unmute. If I say the soul that you placed in me, all right, you placed the soul in me. That means I'm a body that has a soul. And the explanation is because that's the way we view reality. For the most, most of our life, we relate as bodies because we're living in a physical world where body reigns supreme. Soul is something we have to become sensitized to. It's something that we only get a glimpse of every once in a while. But in Adam's world, pre the eating of the fruit, he was a soul that had a body. His soul was his identity. His body was his car that he drove around. So after the, the Mount Sinai, at the giving of the Torah, the Jewish people reached the level of Adam before the sin. Death disappeared. They became purely spirit, spiritual beings. Adam, after he ate from the tree, had to die. Because now that you relate to yourself as a body, so your body has to die to remind you that you're not really a body. The reason we have death is to remind us this existence in the body is temporal. That's not your true identity. How can you identify with something that's just here for a little while? Right? If you're, if you're leasing a car for a few year, for a year or a rental for a day, you're going to start going around telling people, this is my car. This is who I am. You ever see someone that like, I, I have seen this, unfortunately. It's very sad. But when we lived in, in upstate New York, there was a guy on our block who used to wash his car every single Shabbos. And we wash our car once a year, and that's coming up right before Passover. We wash our car really well once a year, and there's a lot of Cheerios in our car. Literally, a whole box of Cheerios at some point over the past year has been emptied out in our car. So we clean our car once a year because it's a, play, it's a car. It drives us around. I mean, yeah, we should probably clean it more often. But... It does the job. It gets us where we're going, and we have kids. So even if we clean it, it's going to get dirty tomorrow. So, But someone who cleans his car every week, I think, is over-identifying with his car a little too much. right? Because it's just a car. It's not who you are. It's a wonderful thing to have clean stuff. Don't get me wrong. But is that your identity? Or is that just something that you have? And we can go further and further as, as we have in the past. Do you identify with your stuff? 
Do you identify with your actions or do you identify with your being, with your essence, with your soul? So we live in a world with two primary modes of existence. There's our bodies and our bodies do things. They talk, they walk, they make things. In fact, our bodies also even have thoughts and feelings. Or do, I, do we identify with our essence, which is the us, when you strip away the stuff that we do, the stuff on the outside, including our thoughts and our words and our feelings. The essence is a soul, which is the thinker, the doer, the beer, the chooser, that which is the essence of who you are, which is beyond all the things that you've ever done. That's why the stuff you do doesn't define you. According to Judaism, it's very easy. We don't believe in guilt, although there is such a thing called Jewish guilt. The grandmothers, Babushka's made that up. It's not a real thing. It doesn't exist. We believe in fixing what you've done wrong, but don't over-identify with your actions. Don't over-identify with your failings and with your mistakes and with your flaws, because none of that is the real you. Your essence is pure and perfect and beautiful. Got that? All right. Questions? Moving right along. So, <clears throat> Hashem re relates to the world. God relates to the world. There are two primary modes of relating to God. Okay? Julia, good to have you back. There are two primary ways in which God relates to us. And there are, there are really ten names for God. But there are two main ones. Two big ones. Okay? One is what we call Hashem, which is four Hebrew letters, Yud, He, Vav, He, not pronounced, which essentially means existence itself, the source of existence, what was, what is, what will be. That is the ineffable name of God. That is the Shem Ha'etzim. It's the essential essence of God. It's the name that denotes God as the source and the place of all existence. Okay, that is when we talk about God, Hashem, means the name. We're referring to that name. What? Yeah. yud Hey vav Hey. And it's a code, essentially. I've shown you in the past. I could show you another time for what was, what is, what will be. Ultimate existence. And it's also a verb. It's a verb which means, I guess, existence. Existing. To exist. To be, to to create. That's what the name means. Okay, then there's another name. It doesn't mean to create. It means the source of creation. Then there's another name of God. When we make a blessing, we, we, we actually don't pronounce the name Hashem. We say Adonai, which means, which is actually another concept which we're not going to explain right now. But then there's the name Elohim. Which, when we say a blessing, we say, Baruch atah yudke vavke elokeinu, which means our God. So the name Elohim represents a very different uh, expression of God. And that is God as he is expressed in the pieces of creation. There's the creator or the essence of creation. And then there's Elohim, which has to do with contraction. God, as he contracted himself into physicality, it's a name that is connected to judgment, strength, what in Hebrew, gevura, din, um, a certain type of contraction, whereas yud heh vav -Hey is con relates to compassion. And the name Elohim is most notably the same numerical value as the word hateva, which means nature. It's God hiding in the world. It's the world of nature, of physicality that God created to conceal himself. Okay, so we have God in his essence, and then we have God contracted and hidden in the world. It's the whole versus the pieces. The source versus the details. So. The name, uh, what essentially, in order to create the world, Hashem, absolute infinite oneness, had to contract himself to create space 
and then send his essence into physicality in order for other to exist because all there is is God. The name Elohim is actually plural, which is weird because we believe in one God. And yet every time we make a blessing, we say our gods. Eloheinu means our gods. That's weird. Anyone else think that's weird? It is weird. The answer is, is because we live in a world of powers and forces, forces of nature. And that is the world that Hashem created to hide himself. What we're saying when we make a blessing is that the gods that we see all around us, the God of nature, of thunder, of light, of fire, of love, of war, of money, all of those forces are actually one. That's the message of Hashem. That's the message of the Shema. When we say the Shema, hero Israel, Hashem, Yud, K, Vav, K, what was, what is, what will be, the source of all, Elokeinu is actually hidden inside nature, inside all the parts and pieces of this world, Hashem Echad, everything is oneness. So that is the, the, the message of the Shema. And on Yom Kippur, the, the final place that we're trying to get to, at the very end of Yom Kippur, we say seven times, we scream out loud, Hashem Hu HaElokim which means God is Elohim, nature. There is no such thing as nature. All there is is God. Get me my clerk book over there. All there is is God. So that is the two dynamics that are facing us in our lives. We live in a world of randomness and chaos, a world of stuff, a world of dichotomy, a world of different powers and forces that control our destiny. And yet we also believe that all there is, is God. And my, one of my rabbis used to say that it's a paradox that a Jew has to live with. In the East, in Eastern religions, it's very clear that all there is is oneness. All right? Eastern, in the East, all there is is oneness. In the West, all there is is world. And a Jew has to live in both at the same time. Living in the world, going to work, getting a job, getting married, eating while recognizing that all there is is God. It's a paradox. Okay, so what was going on with the worshiping of the calf? So according to almost all the opinions that I looked at, the, they were not worshiping the calf. No one believed that this calf that they made out of gold took them out of Egypt or was their God. And in fact, they say, it says explicitly, let's have a celebration to God. Tomorrow, after they built the calf, it says Chag Lashem Machar. We're gonna have a we're gonna have a, uh, a a festival to God tomorrow. So no one was believing that this calf was God. Rather, the commentaries explain that they wanted an intermediary to go between them and Hashem. They thought that Moshe had disappeared. They thought that Moses wasn't coming back down. He was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And they made a miscalculation. They thought he was not coming down. He must have died. And they said, we need a leader. We need an intermediary between us and God. We can't go directly to Hashem. We need someone to go through to connect us to Hashem. Does that sound familiar to anyone? We can't connect directly to God. We need someone else to connect us to God. Sounds like idolatry or perhaps other some other religions that believe that we need an intermediary to connect to God. So point number one is we need a, we need a leader or an intermediary to connect to God. Yes. So it depends who not Muhammad. No, not Muhammad. Muhammad is not an intermediary, but Jesus, some might say, yes, is. Uh, uh, Allah. Yeah, no, Islam is kosher. Islam believes in one God. They don't believe in that you need a person to connect to God. But Christianity, no, Muslims do not believe that you need a person to connect to God. But Christianity does seemingly believe that you need to go through somebody to connect to God. So 
Number one, they say we need someone to go through. Number two could be that they said they felt we need to connect, we want to connect to Hashem through a tangible form. It's very hard to connect to an abstract being. We want to see something. We want an anchor in this world. We want to connect to Hashem through some sort of a being or an idol, right? Which essentially is idolatry. But at this point, they didn't believe that the idol had power. It was just a representative of Hashem. And another possible explanation is that they wanted to reveal Hashem through the physical world, through Elohim. And that's exactly the word that they say. They say that we want to make a an, uh, uh, make for us a calf, make for us an Elo, an Elohim, Asher Yelchalifnenu. Make for us an Elohim, a force, a power, a plurality that can go between us and God. But again, the word Elohim has to do with nature. Perhaps they wanted to reveal God through nature. And everyone points out that gold is the color of judgment. According to Kabbalah, gold is a red color. It has to do with fire. It has to do with um, strength. And so something to do with strength, uh, some say that an ox is an image that appears on the throne of God, and it's on the left side, which represents strength, and they wanted to somehow tap into the power on the left side of God's throne. But putting that all aside, where does idolatry come from? So the Rambam explains that at the beginning of time, everyone believed in God. But eventually, they said, you know what? Who are we to connect to one God? We're so small and insignificant. Instead of talking directly to God, let's talk to his powers, to the angels, the celestial beings, the stars, the astrological forces. And let's serve God through his mission, his emissaries in this world. So they began to worship God through the forces of nature, the angelic beings, spiritual powers, the stars as a means of connecting to God. And over time, they lost that connection. And they began to just worship the trees and the sticks and the stones and the angels and the stars as beings of, uh, in and of themselves. In reality, these forces have no power. All they do is reveal whatever Hashem wants to be revealed in the world. So you're making a mistake to worship an idol. But it's it, it started out kosher. Yes, Daniel, unmute. Good evening. Please. Yeah, if you're, if you're, you're, no one's worshiping the spices. If you're worshiping the thing as this thing has power and I want to tap into it, spirituality through this thing, that's idolatry, right? If I'm recognizing that this is just a thing <laughs> that doesn't have power on its own. So again, we have to be careful when you're dealing with spiritual forces, right? If you're communicating with angels, be careful. Ask your local rabbinic authority if you should be communicating with angels or doing magic or things like that. But if you're spelling spices, probably putting crystals around your house, I don't see, I don't believe there's any issue with any of that. But if your intention is to invoke certain spiritual forces, so that becomes problematic, potentially problematic. And again, there are rabbis in history who had angels that came to them and taught them, right? The greatest, greatest rabbi, um, who, who wrote the, the code of Jewish law, the Shulchan Aruch, Rabbi Yosef Cairo, had someone called a Magid, which is a spiritual force who came to him and taught him Torah. Okay. What? There are numerous stories of rabbis who learned with angelic forces. Um, the Vilna Gon, it said, I mean, we believe them. 
The Vilna Gon is, it is reported, had an angel that came to him, a Magid, a spiritual force who offered to teach him, and he said, no, I want to do it on my own. So, but the Baal Shem Tov had a, a, a prophet, uh, the, the, the soul of a prophet that came to him and taught him a lot of the secrets that he had. So there, this stuff is real. I very much believe it. You have to get to a very high level to see these things. Right? There's a, there's a rabbi who fasted for certain, hundreds of days. I don't remember the number. And he began to have visions of Eliyahu, Elijah the prophet, would come to him at night and teach him. You have to get to a very high level to get these things. The issue is if you manipulate these forces. To learn from them, not a problem, according to most opinions. But to manipulate them, to utilize them, to do magic, to get you what you want, then it becomes a problem. Because our job is to do what Hashem wants and to get what we're supposed to get. Prayer is kosher. Manipulating certain spiritual powers to get you the things you want, that's idolatry. Because it's not about you, right? If, if you're utilizing spirituality to fill your own needs, to get you money, love, success, that is at the, that's where we draw the line. Because ultimately what idolatry was is I want a God that I made. You get the difference? I want a God that I'm in charge of choosing my God. I'm going to choose which God I'm going to follow. I'm in fact going to be create my own God. Essentially, I'm in charge. And I'm going, and according to many opinions, the idols were powers, right? Connecting to the stars. I can connect to the stars or certain spirits in order to bring things into the world. But that means I'm getting what I want. I'm manipulating spirituality for my own benefit. Whereas, Torah says, it's not about me, it's what Hashem, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? Some point out that the opposite, the difference between Christianity and Judaism is Christianity, God's son dies for us. Judaism starts with Abraham's son, who Abraham gives to God. So that's really essentially what it's about, is what can I do for you, Hashem? What can I do? How can I be of service? Not how can I get what I want out of life. And I think that when people approach prayer, we could have a class on prayer at some point, but many people approach prayer as like, here I have a shopping list of all the stuff that I want. And I'm just going to ask God to give me what I want. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. It's much better to talk, have a relationship with God and talk to him. But the goal isn't to just get stuff from God. The goal is to have a relationship and to say, what can I do to make myself worthy of this thing? How can I make my? How can I utilize the things that I want to make myself better, to make the world better? So, questions on that? That was off, but mostly on topic. So, all that happened after the golden calf. Yeah. At this point, the firstborn of the family was supposed to be the priest. But because the tribe of Levi, my tribe, I've told you before, I'm not a Jew. I'm from the tribe of Levi. We're not from the tribe of Judah, of Yehuda. Our tribe didn't worship the, the golden calf. And neither did women. No women engaged in the worship of the, of the golden calf. In fact, it was a small minority of the population. I think a total of 600 people. but it was a big enough deal that the other people didn't step in and stop it, that we all got in trouble because of it. So let's, let's move on and we can come back to idolatry. That wasn't the point of this class at all. It was just, just touching on it. But the main point I want to bring out is that there's two modes of being. There's Hashem, who's infinite and, and ineffable, who doesn't have form, who is the source of all. And then there's Elohim, which is the forces of nature. And we can relate to Hashem through the world, or we can relate to Hashem as his essence. And it seems like the people wanted something tangible. They wanted to relate to Hashem through the world. So now, what was the response? What was the consequence? As Hashem says to them, you want an intermediary? So now I'm going to have an angel guide you and take you into the land of Israel. You want to serve me through the physical? You can have bodies that die again. You can go back to a physical existence. You want to reveal me through nature, through the name of Elohim? Now you have to build a sanctuary for me instead of connecting to me directly within yourself. 
So the sanctuary becomes a microcosm of the universe. The 39 actions that went into building the sanctuary are the 39 actions with which God used to create the world. So it becomes a miniature universe, a miniature world of nature. And in that, God becomes revealed to us through the world. So now, let's go to Shabbos, because that's really what I wanted to talk to you about tonight. And we only have 10 minutes left. Why do we rest on Shabbos? Ready for bed? Nine o'clock. Yes, because God rested. Why is that ridiculous? Right. It doesn't make any sense. What do you mean God rested on Shabbos? So the answer is, God doesn't need to rest like we do. We work, we get tired. God doesn't get tired, doesn't have a physical body to rest. So when we say that God rested on Shabbos, we mean he rested from what he was doing during the six periods of time of creation. So what what was God doing for six days? Creating what? The world. For six days, God was building nature. He was constricting himself into a physical universe. On Shabbos, you know the word Shabbos has a double meaning? It means to rest. Do you know what else it means? Sit, same word as rest, but good. One more. Hashuv. To return. Hashem on Shabbos stopped building a physical world and he returned to his essence. Six days he was going into the world of Elohim, of forces of nature. On the seventh day he returned to his essence the source of everything. So when we say that we rest on Shabbos because God rested, what that really means is that on six days, we are busy be doing, engaged in the physical world of building a world bigger, better, different, using 39 creative actions to change the physical world. On Shabbos, we stop and we return to our essence to a state of being, from a state of doing to a state of being. That is what happens on Shabbos. And in fact, the sources point out that on six days, God created a physical world that was a shell. It was physical, but empty. On Shabbos, he gave the world a soul. He put essence into the physical pieces. Again, it's the pieces and the whole. On Shabbos, he gave a holistic vision to those pieces. It's described as follows, that Shabbos, the six days of the week, are six sides of a cube. The physical universe is created at three dimensions. So what happens if you take six squares and put them together? What do you get? Unmute. Wrong. Six squares gives you six squares piled on top of each other. How do you turn six squares into a cube? You have to put them together around a central space. That central space is the seventh dimension. It's the inner essence that holds everything together. It's the soul of reality is the inner space. That's Shabbos. It's a day to celebrate what's going on inside of returning to who you really are. We live in a world where we wear masks, just like Hashem wears a mask. We talked about it in Purim. Hashem's mask is the world of nature, the world of doing, the world of physicality. We wear masks. We have roles that we play. On Shabbos, we stop and we say, who am I really? How can I stop the external existence and focus on the internal, on the world of essence, on the inner space? So on Shabbos, we get an extra soul. That extra soul is our essence. 
its connection to a deeper part of ourselves, our true self. And after Shabbos ends, we lose that soul because that soul is needed to connect us to who we are. So we have energy to go into the world of working. But it's a different dynamic. We, When we go to work, we're wearing our external mask. Our job is to bring that soul into the physical, to reveal God through nature. Okay. Anyone have a question on that before we top it off? So I, I, I could tell you that there's stories and stories of people who look different on Shabbos, like holy people that they literally couldn't recognize each other during the week. I can only tell you that when I started keeping Shabbos, I felt a difference. It only really works when you stop the work. It, it's there, but it's hard to relate to it when you're busy living in the world of doing. When you disconnect from the world of doing and focus on the world of being, you can tap in. The reason that we smell spices, Daniel, after Shabbos is because the soul leaves after Shabbos and there's an emptiness, a vacuum that's left behind. And it's just something that people feel. You can't not feel it. When Shabbos ends, that aura goes away. That feeling of being high, of something different. And honestly, I can just tell you the times, the first time, few times I kept Shabbos, I felt like I was in another dimension. I did not feel like I was in the regular world. I didn't even notice the cars passing by anymore. Stop. Please go up to your room. Yeah. So, last point. Why do we offer animal sacrifices in the temple? So I'm going to share with you three ideas. And again, we could go into these in more depth another time. But answer number one, every time the animal sacrifices are mentioned, it's bring a sacrifice. And the word sacrifice in Hebrew is a carbon, which means to bring close. Bring this animal close, Lashem, to Hashem Yud What are we essentially saying when we do that? We're saying we're taking nature, an animal is a very animalistic physical being, and we're saying I'm giving it back to Hashem to recognize that Hashem Hu HaElokim, God is the source of everything. That's essentially what we're doing. And the Rambam, my mom, says, that one of the reasons for animal sacrifices is simply because people worship animals. And by us taking those animals, we're essentially saying these animals are not divine. There's no God, this, there is godliness in everything, but the source is Hashem. And then the Ramban, Nachmanides, says that we're essentially taking our animal self, our body, our physical form, and saying that we are giving up of our physicality, of our material possessions. It's like literally like the animals were like the cars and the currency, the stocks, the uh, the um, Bitcoin of the day. So you're essentially taking your valuables and you're giving it to Hashem to say that I, myself, my body, my car is not my identity. I should really be giving myself on that altar. But instead I'm giving of my possessions. So Building the sanctuary does not override Shabbos. But you know what does override Shabbos? Offering sacrifices in the temple. Why? Because now it's very simple to understand. The building of the sanctuary represents six days of creation. The world of nature, a microcosm for the universe. Shabbos is the seventh dimension where we step back and disconnect from the world of being. An animal sacrifice is the two going together. It's taking the physical and offering it up to Hashem, saying, Hashem is really the source of everything. It's even higher than Shabbos. So, last point is this this week's Shabbat Parsha, this week's Torah portion, uh, in addition to reading from the weekly Torah portion, we also do another special Shabbos. I mentioned before, there are four special Shabbos uh, in preparation for Purim and, Pe- and Pesach, Passover. And we're up to the third this week, and it's called Parshas Para, where we read about something called the Paraduma, the red heifer, the red cow. You ever heard of that one? 
So this is another very weird, mysterious law in the Torah that there's a certain type of impurity that's associated with dead bodies. And if a person touches a corpse, they're not able to bring the Passover offering in coming up in Passover. So before Passover, people who would come in contact with the dead would have to get sprinkled by the ashes of a red cow. So I'm not getting into the details right now, but according to many opinions, it's directly related to the golden calf because the golden calf is red. Gold is red, according to Kabbalah. And the idea is that through the golden calf, we brought death to the world. We made ourselves physical again. So in order to in order to purify ourselves from coming into contact with death, we need to bring this red cow as a remembrance of the events that took place. So now, last point. I want to just say something practical. And the practical idea I want to share with you is in addition to perhaps the most important idea, which is to spend time, especially on Shabbos, when we have the opportunity to connect, to disconnect. Disconnect from the world of doing, connect to the world of being. But when you think about our relationships, we are addicted to idolatry. We all worship idols every single day of our life. And what I mean by that is that it's very hard to have a real relationship with essence. It's much easier to relate to people as the mask that they wear, as the role that they play to connect to the externals of the people in our life. True presence, true relationship is stripping away the exterior, stripping away the idea of the person that you're talking to, the idea of the person that you love, the role that they play, whether it's your, your husband, wife, parents, children, and focus on who they are without the titles, without the roles, without the definitions, without the concepts, deconceptualize and just open your mind up to pure connection. That's what hallucinogenic drugs do. They take away the conceptualization of reality. You just experience pure reality and you blows your mind to look at a blade of grass and realize how incredible a blade of grass is. You know, the Talmud says that every single blade of grass has an angel standing next to it, telling it to grow. Right? There is a world of spirituality that's literally happening all around us. If we can take a moment to disconnect, to just focus on being present with the people that we have in our life and with ourselves, your presence is the greatest present that you can have. And that's uh, that only takes place in the present moment. So I uh, want to wish you all an amazing Shabbos of connection connection to yourself, connection to Hashem, connection to others, it's all one thing. Because when you connect to yourself, inside you is God. And when you truly connect to yourself, you have the ability to connect to another. So they're all taking place at the same time, and that's that's what Shabbos literally is a day. It's Shabbos Hayom Lashem. It's a day to connect to Hashem, a day to connect to essence, to truth, to reality. So uh, questions, comments?